0: And I got chased by an helicopter. I think he got down to about 50 feet. It was nose to nose at one point, and I just sat there smiling at him. And he's just looking at me, and I, I say I was just looking at him at the time. Because could see the, the senior officers in the back, and they were just pointing fingers at us. So they got more than one finger back.
1: This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Pete Curran served with Bricsmiths, the British military liaison mission in East Germany. Their operation was established by a post-World War II Allied Occupation Forces Agreement where British, US and French missions had relative freedom to travel and collect intelligence throughout East Germany from 1947 until 1990. Pete's story starts with details of his vetting interview, driver training and his first tour in East Germany. We also hear of the intelligence scoops he was involved in and some of his close scrapes whilst evading. the Soviets and the Stasi including one with a Soviet helicopter. We also hear about the role of the driver in the three-man teams, the incredible camaraderie of the unit as well as the pressure on their loved ones. I know from my stats that a lot of you really enjoy the podcast. It is an absolute passion for me to save these stories from being forgotten and sharing them weekly for free for everyone to hear. Now, whilst this is a passion, I'm asking if each listener could make either a one-off or better still, sign up to monthly donations to help me to find the time to produce and finance the project. If you'd like to know more, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps get new guests on the show. So, back to today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome Pete Curran to our Cold War Conversation.
0: Just joined up as a driver. I did the normal six weeks basic training at RAF Swinderby. And from there I was posted I had to go to RAF St Athan for my trade training
1: as a driver. How how did you end up being recruited into, into Bricksmiths?
0: I was stationed at RAF St Athan as a, a driving instructor. And something came through on the local orders. They were looking for special duties drivers of special duties, and I hadn't got a clue what it was. So I applied, and lo and behold, it was it ended up with miss
1: I thought the uh, the first rule of being in the forces is never volunteer for anything, Pete.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. supposedly, but it, it just, it was special duty. You never often saw this come up in orders, local orders, about special duties, and I thought, well, I just fancied doing something different, so I went for it.
1: What was your your first interview with them like?
0: It was uh, it was four hours. It took. It was a vetting interview, and they went through my life story <laughs> from when I was a kid all the way through everything. Uh, it was it was painful to say the least, but I'm glad I did it
1: so they were asking you about your political affiliations and things like that political as well
0: political affiliations sexual affiliation everything you name it they asked it in
1: and at that point did you know what the unit was that you were interviewing for or were they still keeping it sort of hush hush
0: it was still kept stubborn. I didn't I still have not got a clue
1: so so when did they do the the big reveal and let you know what what you were being recruited into
0: i just come through that i was I was being sent to, on a course to Ashford, an intelligence course. And my boss at the time at St. Athens says, you know, you're going to Bricksmith. And basically I said, what the hell is Bricksmith? <laughs> and he, he explained it to me. I said, well, it sounds interesting. He says, you'll end up getting a medal out of it. Uh, well, that, that didn't interest me at all. And he said, I said, well, tell me about the job. He says, I don't know what the job is. I said, I don't know what you do there. He says, but you will find it interesting. And that was it.
1: Wow. Um, you're sent off to Ashford. What What is the training that they give you there?
0: It was uh, four weeks of learning all about Russian and East German equipment, uniforms, anything basically about the Russians. You know, the are bats, everything like that.
1: And, and was the focus on, on the Russians or were you also looking at I mean, I guess the East Germans used the same kit, essentially.
0: It was primarily focused on the Russians. But yes, we did cover quite a bit of the East German kit, obviously, because they were using the older Russian equipment. So in, in East Germany, the Russians always had the newer kit where the East Germans was getting the the me downs basically. <laughs> so we had to look at both sets.
1: Were they teaching you any language skills as
0: well? There? No, no. It was just mainly the officers that did that. The senior NCOs, I think they did a German course, but the officers went somewhere to do a full Russian language speaking course.
1: Right. So they didn't even give you some of the basics, or or not?
0: No, not really. No. Luckily, I was at one of my units was stationed that we used to go out to Germany quite a lot, and I did pick up some German, so I wasn't too bad.
1: There was. Probably uh, further training around evasive driving skills and stuff like that. Yes,
0: I had to go to the Army Depot at to do that. That was a three-week course. It was very, That was very interesting as well because it's obviously coming from being a driving instructor to doing evasive driving was completely two different things. There were ex-police driving instructors that instructed us on the course.
1: So so these are the, the same guys that would be training uh sort of raw protection people and and uh drivers and stuff like that, I presume. Yes, they were, yeah. I don't know whether you can share with me sort of some of the not necessarily the detail of, of what they were showing you, but you know, what what they were you know, just something about what they were trying to show you how how to do. Presumably it was, you know, handbrake turns and reversing quickly and <laughs> stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah, we, we learned all that. The
0: J-turn, we call them J-turns, they were handbrake turns, J-turns, high-speed driving in reverse. It was basically normal driving, but you had to protect the person in the back. So you never got too close to a vehicle in front if there was traffic lights your road works. You always had a way to get out of any situation at any time.
1: Because I guess the the Stasi or the, the Soviet technique was to block block you in so that you couldn't go forward or reverse.
0: That that's what they tried to do, yeah. Luckily these the conscripts weren't
1: very good at doing
0: it. <laughs> so it was <laughs> at times they did manage to do it, but a lot of the time they didn't.
1: The vehicles that you were using – I mean, what what year was this that you were doing the training? Uh,
0: 1987, I started with – 87, 1987.
1: The vehicles you were being trained in, were they the Oh on, on
0: the driving course, it wasn't the Glendewagen, no. We didn't get all of those until we went to Ashford to do your uh, intelligence course, mm-hmm. and that's when we got all of the Glendewagen.
1: Right. So you're just training in, well, not regular vehicles, but.
0: The vehicles the police used to wear, especially designed for high speed driving and, you know, vehicle protection, things like that.
1: Were they training you in cross country driving there or not? We
0: did some cross country driving with them, yeah, but not too much. That was something that came later on.
1: After you've done the intelligence training and the uh, evasive driving training, are you practicing like on Salisbury Plain or, or places like that before you actually get posted?
0: Part of the course, we went to Gatwick and sat at the end of the airfield and saw nobody could find us. And then we went on to Salisbury Plain for a big divisional exercise. And we played, we were playing with the British Army basically. But they didn't get told we were coming. So it was like being in a, a situation in East Germany where you became, you came across a big exercise everything went the same,
1: so they had no idea they they could have thought that possibly you were i r a or something like that they could have thought well, there was anything
0: yeah there was only one on one occasion during the course where they actually set up an ambush and you were guaranteed you were going to get caught and that would that was just to put you into a situation of being in a detention so if it did happen when you was in East Germany, it didn't come as a shock.
1: How did they simulate the the detention? Did they simulate you being interrogated?
0: No, because if we ever got detained in East Germany, we wouldn't talk to anybody except for the Commandant So we had to insist that they got the local Commandant Churer out and we'd talk to him, or the officer would talk to him. We didn't talk to anybody else.
1: Right. So you're talking the Soviet forces there that you, you would, because the, the Robinson Malinin. Agreement, which Bricksmith was originally set up under was with the Soviets and therefore yeah. you didn't necessarily recognise East German authority. Nobody recognised them at all. Right. Okay, so when when did you get sent out to uh, Berlin? March 88,
0: I went out to Berlin. Right.
1: Was that your first time in Berlin? Yes, it was, yeah. What did you make of Berlin? <laughs> to be honest with you, Ian, I didn't see anything of
0: it for the first two months I was I got off the aeroplane at Gatto I was took to my married quarter at, it was supposed to be like 11 o'clock in the morning told I had to be in uniform and at HQ by one and somebody would pick me up and make sure I got there by one o'clock and from there it just started so it wasn't till, it wasn't until I got my first break that me and my wife managed to get out and get around Berlin
1: right so you were straight into it Without any, yeah. any pause at all. Wow.
0: Literally, it was, say, I landed in Berlin that afternoon. I was in front of the edge. And then the next day, it was doing a bit of local training. They took us out of the Glendeburg and on the Grunewald. Did quite a bit of cross-country training, getting chased, things like that. And then the week after, I was out on tour.
1: Wow. Wow. What What did your wife think of being posted to Berlin with you?
0: I think it was a great adventure for my wife, to be honest. We had two young children. Luckily, the uh, the eldest one went to school right at the end of where we were living, my married quarter. We made friends with the people in our block of flats, or well, she did. Obviously, I wasn't there much, but she made friends with them. So, yeah, she, I think she enjoyed it
1: initially. I've heard from a number of people that Berlin was one of the most popular postings. Oh,
0: it's a fact... Once, once we got to see everything, well, we we got to go around Berlin. It was fantastic, really. Well, with the wall being up, it was a lovely, really clean city, and the Germans were very amicable towards everybody. Well, you know, we, we we tried to speak German to them, and they tried to speak English back to us, and we got through all the time with them. You know, yeah, it was really good.
1: I managed to get to Berlin before the wall opened in uh may 89 yeah i d- i would say it's a similar sort of impression it's a, v- a very uh clean city and it was heavily subsidized from west germany as well your first crossing across the uh, glinica is it Glinica or Glinica? Glinica bridge glenica right I, Everybody says it differently. I always get—I always pronounce it. I got hauled up by somebody the other day for pronouncing it wrong, and I still can't get it into my head what's the right pronunciation.
0: I always used to say the Glynica
1: Bridge. Okay. Can Can you talk me through the first time you crossed the the Glinica Bridge?
0: Yeah, uh, I was taken across to the mission house by the on-call duty driver, the mission house duty driver. You did a week at a time at like that. He came and picked me up, took me across, and obviously, obviously you don't know what to expect. And as we approached, he was explaining all the security backups the Russian had, so we had to approach a barrier, stop there, then the cameras the cameras went on to us You could see we were the, the gate up. We went through to another barrier; they actually opened that by hand. Then we went through to the the hut where the Russian officer was sat. The guard came to us. He took our passes. We had to salute the guard, say, spacebo or, or this. He took the passes into the guard hut. He then came back out with the guard hut, with our passes, walked around the vehicle to check it, checked us against the passes, and then went through the same thing going back out the gate, through a manual barrier, then through an electric gate to get into Potsdam.
1: The Mission House was Bricksmith's headquarters in East Germany.
0: Yes, it was, yeah.
1: And when you arrived at the, the Mission House, what, what happened then?
0: It was it was just a case of being introduced to the Mission House Warrant Officer, Tony Hall, and being show, then being shown around Potsdam what was there, what we could see. And then I, I stayed with the duty driver, for two or three days, so I could learn the ropes. The duty driver The, mission, the duty driver in the mission house went through.
1: Um, when they're showing you around Potsdam, it's not necessarily a sightseeing tour, but showing you where the Soviet barracks were and things like that.
0: Well, well, well you, you did have to, have to drive past the main. So yeah, it would be a shame not to have a look at them. <laughs> Is it driving past?
1: Exactly. Exactly. After after that, when is your first mission proper into East East Germany?
0: The first mission proper was the local tour about, I'd say, two or three days later.
1: The local tour is one of the regular routes that, that Bricksmiths would, would do, isn't it?
0: That was, it was covered 365 days a year, the local area, by all three missions.
1: So you've been introduced to your uh, officer and... I can vividly remember the first
0: tour off but I can remember who I went out with and exactly where we went.
1: Can you can you just talk me through that 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 first tour and, and, and how it went?
0: The first tour we went off we did uh sat and sidings see if there was any uh Russian kit in the sidings or east German kit in the sidings. And we had been out a couple two or three hours just driving round and we decided to stop for a brew overlooking the sidings. And the tour officer always made the first brew. He was always told when you had a brew, you have your window open. Never leave your window shut. Anyway, we, we got the brew going and the two officer made the brew. We all sat there. And about two minutes later, the starsy found us and comes chasing after us. Unfortunately, I didn't tell my window. So when I went to throw my brew out the window, it actually splashed all the way back over me. <laughs> which I thought was a very painful start.
1: <laughs> so uh, that's a, a pretty good lesson about keeping your, your window open when, you, when you're having a brew, wasn't it?
0: All, all, I could, all I could hear from the back was the tour officer wetted himself.
1: <laughs> so when, when you say the stars he found you, how, how did they approach you? Did they try and box you in or what were they doing? No,
0: no, there's no chance of boxing. this. we're on a, a dirt track. Overlooking the sidings, and there was plenty of get outs there, but he just come up behind us and it just became a chase basically. And he was in his little Vortberg and he didn't have an open L. So, just the two NCO said to me, Play a game with him, just keep slowing down, speed up, slow down, speed up. And it's we got back onto the main road and we just left him, so just drove away from him.
1: So, it's probably quite a good introduction for you oh yeah it was it was good fun i enjoyed it with that way yeah so you're driving the G- galander wagon so that that's got i've i've heard it described in various different ways but sort of like the james bond um switches
0: yes we had a little magic box at the in a at the side of the driver
1: and can you tell us what what those uh what the magic box did i could
0: isolate everything all my electrics so I could be in what in the night I could be driving down the road. I just hit the switch. There'd be nothing. There'd be no lights, no indicators, no brake lights. I could isolate it so just one headlight, one rear rear light went out. So I become a motorbike. I could isolate my brake lights so they couldn't see me braking. It was, it was just something special. We had automatic vehicles. You can't start in gear. A of we had it was adapted so we could start it in gear so we could get away, so you had all these little switches you could just bang them on and do what you wanted basically
1: were you also trained in using in taking photos or videos or anything like that: Yes,
0: I was trained to do it, but it, you didn't often get the chance to do it. It was the two officer was the main man in the back and did all the video with all the photographer.
1: And did you have any much contact with the other military liaison missions like the, the French and the, the US? Not so
0: much the French, but the Americans, at the end of every tour, we used to go to the American mission and it would, uh, we used to fill a report in there what we'd be where we'd been, what we'd seen, and then we'd go back to the mission back to Berlin. If, after every tour, we used to go back in, no matter what time, day or night, it could be... On two o'clock in the morning, I'd have to spend four or five hours cleaning the vehicle. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favourite podcast and
1: I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to com slash donate to find out more.
0: Getting it ready for the next tour. Then we'd we give it to the the mechanics, basically. And then we just fill in a little form and it would say ATI, ATI inspection. So that was an after-tour inspection or and any problems you had. And they'd get onto it straight away. So that vehicle was fully servicing for the next tour.
1: So they'd almost give it a full service after each tour? Oh, they 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 were fantastic.
0: There was a warrant officer around the section, an army warrant officer,
1: but they were all civilians
0: that worked under him, and they were fantastic. They could fix anything. Them lads,
1: right? I could do with one of them for my car, but anyway,
0: Oh, honestly, <laughs> yeah, they, they were fantastic. Just anything, the gearbox, you know, gearboxing right. They'd have it in and out within a day, and that vehicle would be back on the road the next day.
1: They were superb. Incredible. Incredible. How how long were the tours? I think some of them were multi-day, weren't they?
0: Normally, you would be three to four days. A normal tour didn't go any longer. But if we got into a situation where we were meeting a lot of kids, we would extend ourselves. And the longest I did was seven days. Wow.
1: I mean, did you have enough um, fuel to, to last that long?
0: We used to carry uh, fuel coupons with us. And we could go to any East German garage, fill up, and just give the coupons, which was supplied to us by the
1: Russians. And was there fuel of a decent enough quality for your vehicle? Yeah, it seemed to work all right. Right, because you you always think with the with the two stroke, you know, Trabantz and what have you, they they were running on a, a lower quality fuel, lower octane. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, they say it worked. out. Everything was fine. Pretty, obviously, we were out seven days, and the vehicle I'm fine with it.
1: And where where did you stay overnight during during those multi day tours? In the Zebplatz
0: is what we call them. <laughs> Depending if it was an army tour, you go away from the target we we're going to look at the next day, and you find a nice piece of dense woodland, and you go into there. The tour officer and the tour NCO slept in a, a one-man tent outside the vehicle, and I slept in the vehicle. If it was an air tour, we camped very close, within three or four miles of the airfield, again in a, a wooded area. I just wait for the, the first flight of the morning, the weather ship to go up. Once you heard the weather ship go up, you knew then you had a couple of hours to get to your, your uh, observation site. For the first flights,
1: how were your targets d- decided on? How, how did you? What was the, the process for deciding where you were going to go, or did you just receive a list and say drive here, here, and here?
0: The first uh, the driver normally knew about it was the day before tour. If you was if you was in, if you, as long as you weren't out tour, first you'd know about it, it was the day before, and you go up for a briefing. All the planning and everything was done by the operations room. So he had uh, a an major ops officer and a squad leader Air Force officer, and they'd all did all all the planning depending on the the current information they were having, they were getting. And it came down to the two officer to they planned the routes, then they got me up, and we go over everything again, the routes in, routes out, and I put my input in, especially then I've been to quite a few areas they haven't been to. It was up to me, basically, to brief them a better way in or you know, things like this, escape routes, things like that.
1: And if you were in a a situation, was it your decision to to go or leave or was it the officer's decision?
0: 90% of the time it was the driver's decision. If I thought it was going to be... Uh, it's going to get dangerous. There's going to be an incident. I got him out of it. And then afterwards, we'd sit down, have a brew, and we'd talk about why. And the driver was never wrong in a situation like that. The driver was always right. I had to keep them safe. I had to keep the vehicle safe, all the equipment was safe, and especially the tour officer to enter safe. So, like I said, the driver was never wrong. If I decided it was, we should be in that situation at that time, I got us out of it sorry I'm just, i' keep saying i it wasn't just me it was there was fifteen of us all together fifteen drivers so we all had that we all had that responsibility
1: Absolutely, absolutely absolutely now in in some places the 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 n c o and the officer might leave the vehicle to go and look around somewhere how how did you sort of agree where you were going to pick them up or when you were going to pick them up on something like that
0: on certain operations they both left the vehicle left me the vehicle before that we'd sit off and discuss what could happen or what if something did happen what we'd do afterwards and it was a case of I'd go and drop them off and if it was safe to do so I'd just sit there and wait now I could be waiting for two three four hours depending on what they were doing. But if a situation arrived where I didn't think it was safe for me to sit there and I might compromise the tour NCO or tour officer doing their job, I'd get out of it. But I always had a rendezvous point. So if the tour officer, tour NCO, they'd hear me start the vehicle, I'd make sure they could hear me start. And if they heard me start the vehicle, they knew I was going. So they knew then to go to the rendezvous point and we'd meet up there.
1: The maps that you were using, I'm presuming they were pretty detailed then of East Germany.
0: Uh,
1: we knew every
0: track in every wood near us, damn it. We used to go, we used to do special tours which we call mapping. If we hadn't been to an area for a while, they sends somebody out to do a, a mapping. So you go out with a, a tour NCO and you go and find out what tracks went, what tracks didn't go. And so, and when you got back to the HQ, all this information we got went onto this huge map that was up there. So that the next two, if they were in that area, could look and see what tracks went. They were extremely detailed, these maps. Extremely.
1: I presume they were, you know, they'd been built up over the years of Bricksmith's operating.
0: Oh, yes, they had. The the actual map in the headquarters upstairs was in a, a semicircle. Basically, as you went around round the corridor, it was a semicircle. The map covered, as say, five six hundred yards, meters, of East Germany on this map. And like I say, it showed everything.
1: Are there any incidents that that stand out for you in in the tours that you you covered?
0: A good one, I had. It was. It was interesting at the time for us. Uh, we was sent to Halla we around the LA area, and we'd gone on to a, a site. We, we got into a field. The, the one side, at the side of us was a river. The other side of the river was a, a Russian training area. And we were sat there, and there was a 2S6 in the training area, just sat there doing nothing. And we, we sat there waiting for a while to see if it was going to do anything because nobody had ever seen it operating in the 2S6.
1: And what is a 2S6 for?
0: It was uh, anti-aircraft. Two guns and four missiles. And we hadn't seen this operating. And the two NCO and two officers got out and were having a bimble around back as boys in this field. And I'm just, I just kept looking at the 2S6. And all of a sudden, it started operating. It was going up and down, turning, everything. And I, I tried to get hold of the tour officer, and I'm waving like that right out the front window. I'm banging on my door, and he didn't hear me. In, in the end, I had to go out the cupola at the top and shout him to get back. And so they both come running back. They got in, and we got cracking videos of it actually operating. But after being there 20 minutes of doing the video and everything, uh, the Russians appeared with a gas 66 which was a, a four-ton vehicle and they came into the field and obviously they, they'd sin us so we de- we decided we'd do a runner and we got away from it and we left the area completely and we went past another area Russian training area and lo and behold there was a SA-11 surface-to-air missile battery and again this hadn't been seen up and running it had been seen, but not doing anything. And as we were driving past, it was doing everything. It was doing it all, everything, all dancing, all singing. So we got cracking videos of that and stills. And, and then we were stuck with what to do. Do we go back to the 2S6? Do we go and stay on the SA11? So in the end, we ended up going back to Potsdam. We had to get the duty driver, then to drive back to Berlin, get the duty officer out. To get advice on what to do, he came back and he sent us back to get the SA11. But when we got back there, it had gone. <laughs> <laughs> I just at the time it was they, they called it a scoop, and we got two scoops within five hours. Wow! It was report, so like I say for us on tour, it was really
1: fantastic. So this was relatively new kit that hadn't been uh, it, it seen was in new the kit.
0: That, yeah, and it hadn't been seen. I, we had to go out one night, went on a, an Air Force tour. We went up to near Rostock. There's a live range firing up there. And we actually sit had to sit there with this massive microphone, they call it a black banana, and just video the two S6 firing. And they found out how, how many rounds per second it could actually fire this thing. So that's we got that information back then to the British. Obviously, it went down the zone to HQ in uh, Randolph and it went back to the UK and it, it, people worked out what they could actually do. Uh, and another tour I did got a full division move, an actual full division move, and that was the one tour when we was out for seven days. And I got chased by an helicopter. Which was quite fun because there was no way an helicopter was going to catch us. They actually put troops on the end on the ground in the end, and even they couldn't get anywhere near us. And all they did was stop us video on these vehicles moving for two hours. Then we got back onto doing the job when the helicopter went. But that was quite interesting. I, I enjoyed that bit playing with this helicopter.
1: <laughs> so how low was he was he flying?
0: I think he got down to about 50 feet. Wow. It was nose to nose at one point, and I just sat there smiling at him because all I did was just back straight off into a wood. And he it was it was just funny. I think he knew he couldn't do anything, and I knew he couldn't do anything, but he had senior officers in the back that were telling me he had to do something. And so he was playing a game, and I was playing a game, and I won basically in the end because he went and I stayed.
1: Must have got some really good photos of that helicopter oh, as
0: well. That, yes, I've got I've got a couple of good ones at home. Yeah.
1: Oh, I'd love to see those if if you could uh, send just email. I'm sure
0: I can do a couple out. Like it's just been the I was that's photos of the pilot, and he's just looking at me, and I I, say I was just looking at him at the time. Yeah. And then we got a side-on view into the windows. You could see the two the senior officers in the back. Obviously, they were part of the divisional move. And they were just pointing fingers at us. So they got more than one finger back.
1: <laughs> it was quite fun. Oh, I bet, I bet that's that's a great story. I like that one. I like that one. Were there any situations where you know they came close to blocking you in or or you know holding you so that you had to ask for the to speak to the Soviets?
0: No, I never got, and I've got detained at all. I was just lucky. I think that's it everything is down to luck. I know a lot of the lads on Bricksmith when I were there got detained. And I was just one of the lucky ones that didn't. So I can't, I can't tell you anything about being detained here. I'm sorry.
1: No, no, that, no, that's fine. That That's fine. Um, w- were there situations where you thought, I'm going to struggle to get out of this one? Yeah, quite a lot. Can you tell me about any of those? Uh I had a PMP
0: chase it we was we got onto a bridging site and these bridging vehicles were doing exercises and we got pretty close but we were still in some wooded area and so we sat back from the circuit they were doing but unfortunately somebody saw us and he came down so it was I was nose to nose with this PMP. So I set off backwards and he's a track vehicle, he, he couldn't keep up with me. But as I did the J turn to go out forwards, and so I, I, it was chasing me at my bike. Something got closer under the vehicle, and it started screaming, and it didn't want to move. And I'm thinking, oh, that pretty big thing's coming at me now. Well, come on. Anyway, it, it actually, I got out of it, and it was just a bush, of course, underneath the vehicle, and somehow it it was holding the vehicle. I don't know how it did it. But we got away and I checked the vehicle underneath and there was no damage at all. So I don't know what happened, but that was a bit of a squeaky bum, yeah.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I mean, was was this after the Andriotti incident where the French uh, crew had got run over by a heavy truck? Yeah. Right, so... Uh, I I, I went, I got to
0: Berlin, to Brixbys, a couple of months after Andriotti got killed murdered in fact not
1: killed yeah absolutely absolutely so in your mind you're thinking this thing isn't going to stop if it catches up with me it might just go right over the vehicle well you didn't know yeah
0: you, you never knew what was i, I was coming off a, we we're coming off a nuclear site we'd been on it there was nobody there we'd have a look around there haven't been any sign of anything being there for a while so we we're coming off. It was down a steep hill, single track road, and a gas, a, a large Russian truck come up, and I saw the, the the finger get pointed at us, and he went to take us out. He just he deliberately went to take me out, but luckily there was a, a, a slight embankment to the side, and I managed to get onto the embankment and went round him that way. Luckily, that was a bit uh, a bit air raising.
1: I mean, you, you said you had quite a number of these incidents, so it, it sounds like it was pretty regular that you know you were you were having to use your evasive driving skills oh, yeah, to
0: the quite yeah quite a lot, especially the, during the main exercise season when they, they'd done the basic training base uh, the Russians and these Germans had done all the trainings and they were going out to to actually have a proper play doing a full exercise, and yeah. They, they weren't going to take prisoners, so you had to be on your metal at all times then, basically.
1: The, the incidents that you had were were involving, you know, troops using the vehicle as a weapon you you weren't fired at at any point?
0: I got fired at once. I, I didn't know at the time whether that's been shot at. It was two officers in the back that said we have been shot, been shot at. But it didn't... He, it was either a bad shot or I moved the right way at the right time because there was no damage to the vehicle. But the officer saw him raise his weapon, and he said he fired.
1: Seeing that in your rear view mirror would.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I didn't know at the time, so it, yeah, you know, that was fine. It was only afterwards when he says that you're thinking, "Oh bloody hell!" You know, it could have been worse, but fortunately, nothing happened.
1: You, you obviously you know when you're back at base you're comparing notes with um other drivers and they've you know had you know other experiences similar to yours and probably more closer calls than yours potentially
0: yeah yeah you come back off too and you talk obviously you, you you did it to let the pressure out you couldn't talk to your wives you couldn't explain to them where you've been and what you've been doing you kept, everything was kept in house. So the wives didn't know where you were, didn't know where you were going. So you couldn't talk to her about it. So you go back and you talk with the other drivers, yeah. Although it I didn't talk with me, but if you was really upset or really problem, you went upstairs and then saw the your your senior officer upstairs. And I chat with them.
1: Did you did you have anybody who sort of thought, actually this isn't for me and and would leave?
0: Not when I was there, no. I don't know, I don't honestly don't know if anybody did actually leave because the job wasn't for them. Yeah, not on the driver's side anyway.
1: Your wife knew that you served with bricksmiths. Did she know the nature of what that role was that you were doing? She,
0: she knew what we were doing. They got a part, She had, they had to have a part one brief, but they never got to know the exact job. They never got to, like I say. You, you couldn't tell the way it was going. When you came back, you couldn't tell them where you'd been.
1: But did did your wife know that it was more dangerous than I don't know being part of the Berlin Brigade? She must have done,
0: I presume. It was again, it was something you didn't talk to her about. You, you being away a lot. You, you do twelve weeks on, and then you get three weeks off. So being away for them twelve weeks and not being on for more than five or six nights, them three weeks, then then twelve weeks. She must have been worried, yeah. But when you come back, you didn't want to talk about it. You wanted to go out and enjoy yourself for those three weeks you were off. Yeah. On your downtime, you know. So then you get out. You just get out together and do things, you know. Just talk normal, not about the job, basically.
1: Yeah, I think, it. you know, to some people nowadays that that seems... Well, strange to some degree, but then that—that that is the nature of military service that you can't al- always share what you're doing with your, you know, with with your wife or or, or partner. And I think it's no. it's it's not forgotten, but I think it's a it's an area which isn't often studied around the Cold War is the, is the impact of service on spouse, you know, wife, whatever. Um, d- during those 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 periods, because e- even being not in Bricksmiths but part of the regular British Army, you know, there there was a danger of fatality during exercises, or a road traffic accident, yeah. or you know, all, all sorts like that. When when you were driving around East Germany, did you interact at all with the ordinary citizens of East Germany?
0: Yeah, we we tried. You, you drive, through, drive through a town, and people will be looking at you, because you, you're a strange vehicle. Uh, who are these strange men in these vehicles? And you wave and smile at them. And You're guaranteed they wave and smile back at you. In, in Potsdam, every Christmas, we used, to, we used to send a Santa across to Potsdam to give presents to the local kids that lived close to the Mission House. And, yeah, we, we, we tried as best for them. And I think a lot of the time it it worked. They they were for us. They seemed to know what we were doing and they didn't mind because we were doing it against the Russians, not the East Germans.
1: Yeah. Did you go in any of the shops? I I heard a a rumour that the officer was told that he had to buy ice creams. (laughs)
0: Yeah. In summer, that was the officer's job to buy the ice creams. Uh, And depending what area we were, were in, if everything was quiet... We go to the Ankauf Verkauf shop, the buy and sell shop, it's like a secondhand shop. And we go in there and for matrushka dolls, things like that. It's a Russian soldier, with his wage, he didn't get paid a lot, so they they used to get matrushka dolls sent back from Russia, and he'd take them to the MV shop, and we'd end up buying them from there.
1: Right. I've heard as well before that sometime on a Soviet exercise, for example, they'd have these um, traffic police. Reggies. Yeah, the reggies. And they were often left on their own for a day or days.
0: I was end. yeah. They were just driven down on a seven-ton truck, kicked out the back, and told, you will stay there until we pick you up, basically. If it was quiet and there's not a lot of people, there's not a lot of traffic around, and there's no obviously other Russian vehicles around, we stop and have a chat with him. And we give him a packet of fags or, you know, some sweets. We carry well when sweets on this, give him some sweets, you know. Uh, and the tour would be yakking away in the back and see. And a lot of the time they, we found out when he was expecting the, the kit to move, to come past his area. It was, it it was very interesting with them. They, they were quite friendly. They were just a normal soldier, be given this regulating job.
1: And the way that the Soviet army, I think, treated their um, their soldiers was not good either. So they were probably pleased to see you <laughs> or to see somebody.
0: I think it was just a case somebody talked to me. You know, I've got a packet of fags here. You. you know, it's, it's fantastic. You know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I would have thought this is pretty unlikely, but did you ever come across any UK civilian vehicles in East Germany? No.
0: Not personally, no. I, I, on tours, I was on, no. and know a couple of, a couple of tours, they've come back and said, they, we followed a a British registered car or a BFG registered car. And they it, it stopped them and said, where the hell are you going? You know, ask them what they're doing. If it were a British, British registered car, you couldn't do anything, really say anything to them, because they went out to go into East Germany. But if it was a BFG car, you went and tried and stop them to make sure they hadn't got lost and got off the corridor. And if the had we'd take him back to the corridor and point him in the right direction.
1: Yeah, because if you're coming through the transit route, the East Germans are timing you, aren't you? Aren't they to yeah, make sure that you only had so many hours? Yeah. Where were you when the wall opened?
0: The day before the wall came down, I was at Ashford. I was actually instructed on a, a new course there, on the next intake into Bricksbridge, and we travelled back up on the tenth of November. We travelled back to Berlin, and I was on the, I was approaching the checkpoint as the wall came down. So I was actually on the corridor just going back
1: to go back into Berlin when it all happened. And what what was the the scene? At, so this was coming into checkpoint. Alpha? Yeah. What was the scene at it, Checkpoint it, it Alpha? It was quiet.
0: It was very, very quiet. You wouldn't know there was anything going on there. I think it was all happening in the centre, around Charlie, at right? Checkpoint Charlie. Yeah. And all that, that area, then Schlottenberg, the bottom end, near the, the Brandenburg Gate.
1: When you arrived in Berlin, what, what was the situation at your headquarters? What, what was the, the <laughs> mood there?
0: It was one of what the bloody hell's going on basically. You know, why is this happening? I had to go to a dining out that that night. We got back and one of the RF lads was leaving, so we dined them out. So we had to go we went down to the restaurant, we dined him out, then as soon as we'd finished there, the lot of us shot down to the wall to watch it. To watch what was going on.
1: And what what did you see down there?
0: It was just pandemonium. I mean, it was these Germans just coming through anything, any gate it was up, they were coming through it. Uh, the barbed wire, all got everything, they were just piling in to east, into the into the west. It was it, it was fantastic to see, but it was the end of. You knew then our job was going to be finishing soon afterwards, so it spoiled it for for a lot of us then. So you, you knew that Bricksmith had finished, basically.
1: Yeah, it must have been somewhat bittersweet because every Bricksmith person I've I've interviewed have said they really enjoyed the role. And yeah, seeing something like that.
0: I think if you talk to any Bricksmith person, they'd say they'd go back and do the job now. Yeah. They loved it that much. We all loved that job.
1: And and also Bricksmiths was such an important part of well, Bricksmith, the US military liaison and the French military liaison, in terms of keeping, what I say, the Cold War cool? Because by having you guys on the ground there, it was going to be difficult for the Soviets or the East Germans to put together some sort of surprise attack.
0: No, because we knew, again, in the local area, when you went on tour, you drove past their reserve battalions all the vehicle battalions. And if that then vehicles weren't in, so you were talking within two, three, four miles, there was division divisions with the vehicles in these storage areas. If the vehicles weren't there, we wanted to know where where were they? Why weren't they in their storage? And is something happening? So so you knew if anything was going to happen, we knew it. We would find out. We were the first to know. And obviously then uh, we'd be back to Berlin and there'd be messages flying up and down that corridor back to GHQ and straight on
1: to the UK. Prior to the opening of the Berlin Wall, were you seeing indications in East Germany of, of unrest?
0: We were told we had to be careful going around Dresden and Leipzig because I believe they were the two main areas for the unrest. But personally, I didn't see anything annoying. And we did actually do a tour around Dresden, and we didn't see any problems at all around there.
1: So it, it was a, a big surprise then when, uh, when it happened.
0: Yeah, I think it was. It was for us on Bricksmiths, yeah, I think it was. I was in the sergeant's mess at Ashford the day before, like I say, and they'd said something about the wall, and, and we just looked at each other and said, no, it's not going to happen. And the next day, obviously, we were travelling back and it
1: happened. How, how did the role change after the wall opened?
0: Mainly one of
1: watching withdrawals, doing
0: rail watches, road watches for hours on end, just waiting for the Russians to start withdrawing the equipment. And that is one of the most boring jobs you could ever do in. honestly. <laughs> Sat on a railway line, just two of you. You just did a two-man tour for that. And you'd be there for three, four days, just waiting for a kit train. It was terrible. We had to do it to come withdraw, see what had actually gone out of the country.
1: I mean, was that an opportunity to see kit that you might not otherwise see because they were having to withdraw it or not?
0: I didn't see anything ultra sexy going out. So kit, like the SA-10, which we'd we'd seen a, a glimpse of, things like that. No, I, I didn't, personally I didn't it, you know, it. We just we were just merely tanks.
1: We saw the T-80s withdrawing. Did you notice any change in the behaviour of the of the Soviets to you? Were they more?
0: You, you just noticed they seemed to be happy they were going back home. Mm. They were glad to believe in East Germany.
1: And were there st- less tales from the Stasi? Or Once the
0: war came down, you didn't see the Stasi at all. You never saw them. I don't think their days show their faces to be honest. Yeah. If the locals had seen them, they'd have been, they'd have been after them because uh, they hadn't got the authority. Once that wall had come down, they didn't have that authority anymore, You know, where before they had the, all the authority over the other locals. So they just disappeared completely.
1: When did your service finish with Bricksmiths? August 90. So before the final reunification of Germany. Looking back on your time with Bricksmiths, what would you say was the most surprising thing that you experienced or the most memorable situation that you experienced or saw?
0: The most amazing thing was, I think, with the camaraderie amongst everyone on Bricksmiths, from the chief down. It was when you were in... In Berlin, the, office, the officers were Sir. The senior NCOs were the rank. Out of work or on tour, it was boss by the officer and first name terms with the senior NCOs. And out of, completely out of work, the two officers, it was first name terms. So, and it, was, it was completely alien. It's not. It's not the forces where officers were officers, senior NCOs were senior NCOs, and you were other ranks. One Bricksmith, you was one big family. I, I left I left Germany. I was posted back to RAF Leeming the Tornadoes, and I found out a squadron leader on Bricksmith had become OC flying at RAF linton on News, which was 10 miles down the road from RAF Leeming. So I thought, I'll, I'll try and get in touch with him. So I rung his secretary. I said, could I speak to the wing commander, please? And she said, who's speaking? I said, it's Corporal Curran from RF Leaming. She said, well, I'll, I'll try and get him to ring you back. I said, if you would, please. Anyway, 10 minutes later, I was in my office, and I got a call from this civilian lady I'm working for me. She says, Pete, there's a wing commander on the phone for you. <laughs> so I picked the phone up, the Corporal Curran, mt Section RF Leaming. said, Pete, you old..." four letter word <laughs> how the how are you doing and i said i don't know what to call you i said is it steve is it sir he says call me what you want <laughs> <laughs> and that was it that, that they were, they were like, it was the lives fantastic you know it, it, it was just their family you hadn't seen each other for a couple of years but even though he was a wing commander and i was only a sergeant then i could still call him steve and he was calling me peter calling me all these swear words <laughs> oh, and we, we met up and went with the wives because my wife and his wife are good friends we went out for a meal together so there's me this sergeant at rf leaving going out for a meal with a wing commander OC sea flying at rf Lincoln on the news you know and that was what it just amazed me how, how it worked.
1: i guess you're working really closely together particularly when you're out on operations as well oh, yeah. um yeah. and the whole yes sir no stuff ain't gonna you know, Even
0: the the Brigadier, when you did a tour with him, in the vehicle, it was boss, and you stopped for a brew, first brew, sure brew boss, and he had to make it. That was part of the job, so you had a Brigadier making you a cup of tea, not you making a Brigadier a cup of tea. Yeah.
1: Did you remind him to have the window open?
0: Uh, you try not to tell the chief too much. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hey, this this has been really really interesting. I just got one last question. Have, have you got many souvenirs from your time with Bricksmiths? So I've got the Mission Restriction sign. I've got so, a Spurgebeech sign,
0: which is from a border area, the Polish border. Uh, I've got a an unpainted unpainted picture called its castle, which was painted by an East German lady, and Matryoshka dolls and. Porcelain birds, if it it's not in Dresden, China.
1: Now this show wouldn't exist without our generous patrons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a Patreon by going to ColdWarconversations.com donate. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.